Listener Production. This is From Zero, conversations with business founders. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of LuxuryEscapes.com, financial journalist, author, and angel investor. With my best mate from school, we co-founded Luxury Escapes, and the business has grown to turn over almost a billion dollars annually. In this episode, you ask me the questions in what we call Ask Adam Anything. If you're a budding entrepreneur, established founder, or business professional, and want to ask us a question, please send a voice recording to info at fromzeropodcast.com, and we'd love to get you on the show. Now, on to our first question. Hey, Adam, this is Kate from Caulfield. I was wondering what the first thing you would do if you became the Premier of Victoria. That's one of my favourite questions of all time, Adam. I'll just say that now. Thanks, Kate. Well, Ed has given it the big thumbs up. Best question ever. Uh, so thanks, Kate. Obviously, a, hopefully a, a long-time listener to the show as well. So that, that's a really good question. Uh, and I don't listen to these questions before the show often, so I haven't heard this one. So it has actually thrown me a bit. And it, that's, that's I guess, the, the goodness of that question. But um, obviously, I've got some pretty big big views. And I think being a premier is actually a really hard job because you don't have a control over a lot of stuff. But if you look at I think, probably the biggest problem facing Australia now is that almost every politician is really creating policies for older Australians. There's been this massive intergenerational theft or trans, if you're being more polite, transfer of wealth from young to old. And this is in the form of running massive deficits, borrowing a lot. So we Australia historically has run deficits, but not huge deficits. But our government debt, really through COVID especially, but it happened before that, but COVID really accelerated it with $300 billion in federal spend, federal and state spending. Uh, and we can talk about whether it was right or wrong on a different episode. But regardless, there was a lot of spending that happened. And that spending has been really debt funded. So it wasn't funded through people paying more tax. It was funded through acquiring more debt. So we have to pay interest on that debt. And that debt's not going to be paid by people over 60 because rightly wrong, they'll be dead by the time this debt gets caught in. It's going to be paid by people who are under 30, really. So it's being paid through higher taxes down the track. Or, or through other ways, through inflation, through government printing money to pay off the debts, and that just makes everyone poorer. So we've seen just these generations of, of, of money transferred, and, and the most obvious place is in property. So we've seen a lot of people get rich through property, and property's had this incredible boom. So it boomed from, from really from 1997. Property has increased nonstop to 2008, had a little dip in 08, but then the RBA just kept decreasing interest rates. So whilst the US actually increased rates after that period, the RBA from really from 08, 09 dropped rates consistently. So even when the economy was good in sort of 2015, 16, the RBA was dropped foolishly in my opinion. And I said at the time, dropping rates. Everybody thinks, oh, low rates are great. Well, low rates are great if you own property. If you don't own property, low rates disaster. And I think I know a lot of people listening to the show are a bit younger. So if you don't own a property and all interest rates do is interest rates cause a direct impact of increasing the price of property. So as rates drop, property price increases. So that was one issue. That's one part of the theft. The other part of the theft was almost every government policy was really aimed at making rich people richer and people who don't have money poorer, essentially. So to, the, to his great credit, and, and it was a, a real shame, but Bill Shorten was one of the few politicians, and this is federal, not state level. I know the question was a state question, but Bill Shorten went to the election in 2019 with, with a policy of, we'll uh, fix some superannuation issues. So basically, there was a, basically if, you, if you're old and 70 and getting superannuation and you own shares, 
these shares pay dividends, if your share pays a dividend as an imputation credit on that on that dividend, the government actually pays you cash. It's actually quite absurd. And that, so that cash is being paid by by young people to old people. It's a direct transfer. So the whole superannuation tax system, that's the, the most egregious, but super is effectively a tax-free place to put your money. So you've got older people who are often worth millions of dollars who can invest in property and shares and all sorts of things and are paying no tax. If you're 30-year-old earning $60,000 a year, you're paying 30% tax. So it's this great unfair tax system. And that extends down to state level where uh, there's there's a little bit of tax on property, but there's really not that much. So you pay what's called property tax, which is sort of 1%, and you pay a bit of stamp duty when you buy and sell your house. But in general, property owners don't pay much tax. So how I'd change the tax system, and it's in a way controversial, is I'd change a few things. One thing I'd change, I'd create inheritance taxes. So, so a wealth tax. So if someone dies with $100 million, the person shouldn't inherit $100 million without paying some tax. I'm not saying you should pay half of that in tax, but you should pay some of that in tax because ultimately the government has spending commitments and how we fund that spending commitments comes from citizens. So you can either charge people for earning income, so you pay income tax, or you pay other forms of tax. So oh, inheritance tax is a great form of tax. And another form of tax I'll imply, and this is a state level tax, is really a property tax. So at the moment, uh, there's a small tax you pay if your property's empty. I'd charge a significant tax if your property's empty. So you may have seen, Ed, rents are pretty high these days. So rents have skyrocketed. Why are rents so high? It's because 17% of properties in Melbourne, for example, are empty. So why? So, cap, so people buy a property, uh, they leave it empty, they sell it for a capital gain. Capital gains tax is discounted. So you pay half the rate of tax if you're paying capital gains. So you've got these Wealthy landowners who own two, three, four, five, ten, hundred properties, they pay half the rate of tax and they can leave these properties vacant and pay a small amount of tax. As a result of that, the yield people get on other properties goes up because there's less stock. So renters have less to choose from. There's only one property rent and four people trying to rent that property, the rental price goes up. So we need to force more supply into the market. I'd charge 20% of the value of the property if that property is empty force people to put those properties on the market or sell them to someone who could live in them. That that increases supply of properties and reduces rentals and increases the tax takes. It means you can tax people less from an income tax perspective. So it creates this great win-win-win. It certainly, certainly punishes pe- wealthy people who own properties who are very powerful voting block, which is why it doesn't happen. But obviously, Kate's asked me to be premier and make a decision that I can make without worrying about the poll. So what I do is how do I, what's the most impactful way to to fix some of the economic imbalances, the first thing I'd do is I'd probably reduce stamp duty because it's a transactional tax. I'd significantly increase property tax and I'd massively increase the tax if your property's empty. So if your property is not empty, I'd charge you 3 4% of the property value a year in, in tax. If your property is empty, I'd charge sort of 20% plus. Force that property into the market or force that property to be sold because it's just this great inequity. So you talk about charging still that 3 to 4% on people who own property. Does that have an effect on a young person who, you know, has maybe taken a few of the state benefits to then buy a property with, you know, quite a low deposit and they're, so their cash is very small because they spend it on the property. What happens when they're, they're not able to pay that three, three to 4%? So that, that's a great that's a great point. There's, I think there's a couple, of, and clearly I haven't thought this policy through that you would, with a rigor, you would if you were if you're doing it. So I think there's a couple of exemptions you make. One is you'd charge less for your, your own principal residence and you probably have a threshold. So the lower the value of the property, the less it would be. So if it's a property under a million bucks, maybe it's zero or it's under 500K, zero, 500K to a million, 1%. What, it, would be, it would be a, a small amount. And perhaps you could even capitalize that and you'd pay it when you sell the property or something like that. Uh, 
clearly for investment properties, if you own one investment property, it should be higher. It should, should, should be a scaled tax based on effectively how rich you are, how many investment properties you have. So if you've got investment property and renting that property, renting property out, you're making rental income anyway. So that can come out of the rental income. So that, that's actually quite easy to pay. So again, for a rental property, it could be 5%. For an unrented rental property, it could be 20%. That will clearly have the other immediate effect of reducing the property prices pretty quickly. And property prices are clearly too high, which is again, a tax on young people. So property prices drop 50%. People, people sort of gasp in horror. That would be a great thing. Even though I own a property, I'd see my property cut in half, which you say, oh, Adam, that's terrible. Actually, I think that'd be fantastic. I'd much rather my property be worth half and somebody be able to buy a property. So what that really hits is, is property investors. If you're an owner-occupier, the property price actually doesn't matter. If anything, you want a lower property price. Why? Because you're not going to sell that property. You're going to buy another property or you're paying rates on it. So if you're, owner, if you're an owner-occupier, you want a lower price. If you're an investor with multiple properties, you want higher prices. So who would this harm? This would harm wealthy property invest with multiple properties. So yeah, it will cause a pretty significant impact, but I think it would impact in the right way. It would, it would rectify a huge number of imbalances. The fact that you've got a tax system that's really structured to help the rich and harm the young and the poor. And I think that would be the, the absolute best way to rectify that. Hey Adam, another one for you. How do you manage consistency of policies with remote workers? That's a, that's a really good question. And I've been pretty outspoken on, on let's call it work from home. Uh, I'm not sure if we covered the exact issue on the show, but I've written about it for the Financial Review. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty passionate about it. because I think, I think work from home, uh, I'm not talking about flexible working because that's very different. But I think work from home as a rule, I think you need to be as consistent as possible. But what I really don't like is people permanently working from home uh, without a really good reason. So we love people coming to the office I'm in the office every day. I'm lucky enough that uh, my wife uh, is able to look after the kids a lot. She also does work, but but she doesn't work full time. So, so we're in, I'm, granted, I'm in a really fortunate situation. But I think the the, the key exception is if you've got dependents, uh, kids or, or, or whatnot, uh, and you have to work work from more flexibly, then absolutely flexibility is really important. If you've got special needs yourself, uh, it's really important that that you look at the individual circumstance. I think when we when we create policies at, at our business from around flexibilities, we really look at the personal circumstance, but try and create policies that are really fair. So if you've got a child with special needs, then absolutely it's really important you spend a lot of time with the child and help them and can't come to the office as much. Uh, that's very different to being a, a 25-year-old uh, tech bro who lives in the next suburb and can come in every day, but chooses not to. So I think really to look at, is the individual circumstance really justifying flexibility? And, and so it's a combination of creating really fair policies that are consistently applied. So certainly kids are a big one. Special needs are a big one. Uh, if, if you're not fully able, that's a really big one. And you need to be as, as caring and as possible. And we want to be as broad church and employer as we can. So there are some incredible people who, who may have reasons they can't come in. And we absolutely need to work within those reasons. But let's take away those sort of cases where there are really legitimate reasons. They fall within a policy. So our policy now is we are sort of four days in the office, one day out of the office. The one day uh, can't be Monday or Friday. Uh, and we are likely to soon to be moving in five days in the office. Uh, so, and we've been very upfront with that. We've sort of conditioned our team over the year to be like that. Uh, we actually work, we just suddenly working with a really interesting uh, guy who's created a, a fantastic 
uh, piece of software that, that actually measures productivity and it measures productivity in terms of how many meetings you're having. It values the cost of those meetings, looks at how, mu- how much output you have from, from work to files to emails to a bunch of different stuff. Uh, and, and the productivity data we've got is saying that working from home is far less productive. And it's, you see some people say, oh, we're much more productive working from home. That often is very self-serving. Uh, nobody's really done, I don't think, done a proper study. We've done our own internal study and the, the data is telling us what I think a lot of people believe is that when you work from home, A, you've got to have a lot more meetings because you just can't have that face-to-face quick interaction. Instead of having a one-minute chat over the water cooler, it's got to be a half-hour, one-hour meeting. That's, that's highly, highly inefficient. Problem one. Problem two is you just don't get that shared learning, shared experience. Forgetting the fact it's a lot less fun. Even if you take that out and it's there's mental health issues and loneliness issues and all that sort of stuff. I'm not even considering that for now, which are her- horrific issues for with work from home. Just in terms of productivity, we just don't think it's works from home. We've now got data to support that view. That's not even the fact that you, people tend to sort of start later and finish earlier. Leaving all that aside, you just are less productive at home. Uh, and the people who advocate at home are generally bit more mature, often the sort of 35, 40 year olds who have had their learning time. They, they want to work from home because it's because it's easier and that they'd rather get out of helping other people, helping younger people. So sometimes a, an independent contractor can be really effective working from home, but then you lose that that learning that the younger team members have. So again, it's terrible for younger team members. I know a lot of young people listening to the show do like to work from home. I think it's terrible for, for young people not to come in, to not, not be able to learn, to not be in front of your boss and be able to get that promotion because unfortunately, and rightly or wrongly, promotions are often a function of proximity. If you're in front of your boss every day, you're the one that gets noticed. And it, maybe it shouldn't be that way, but unfortunately it is. So the question was, is work from, isn't work from home good or bad? I think everybody knows my views on, on that. It's how you apply your policies. And I think the key point is being fair and being consistent. I think you want to be able to, if someone, if Donna from marketing asks, well, why is James not working? You want to be able to say, maybe not without disclosing personal circumstance, but say, James has a very good reason. He fits within our policy. We approved under the policy and the policy is fair and equal for everyone. We don't want one rule for James, one rule for Donna. That's just not fair. But we want to have is consistent policies that apply across the board. If you've got a legitimate reason for needing flexibility, and I think as a business, and I think all businesses need to embrace flexibility. So if you need to leave at three o'clock to pick the dog up, go to the physio, um, get a prescription filled, uh, help your mum do something, where I don't think we've ever said no to that. So I think you need to maintain flexibility at all times. So I think you need to have a call a policy of being super flexible with your team. And we were like that pre-COVID, pre-work from home. We always embraced flexibility. If somebody wants to work eleven till eight or 4am till 2pm. In general, we, we almost always support that if that's better for your lifestyle. Uh, that's very different to working three or four days a week from home. There are businesses now that are, I know of a business that we work with that had a thousand seats in the Docklands has now gone to a hundred seats. To me, that's just insanely short-sighted. It's complete failure to understand the dynamics of work. And it's looking at incredible amount of cognitive bias that you've looked at the last two years, you haven't looked forward. It's, it's terrible management. Uh, any manager does that shouldn't be managing a business. So uh, we're taking a certainly a forward-looking approach. We think within sort of a couple of years, everybody, almost everybody's back at the office. Any any good business is back at the office. Uh, we certainly benefit massively from that. We try and bring people together as much as possible. We understand there are people who who need flexibility, who actually even who work remotely, uh, potentially in contact center roles, and we try and bring them to capital cities as much as we can as well. So uh, the po- I think the point is be as consistent as possible, be as flexible as possible, and be as understanding as possible, but knowing that work from the office is best for everyone, but it's not always applicable to everyone. So how to be as fair and as flexible as possible around those key guideposts. So, a, um, and I'd be very interested to hear your take on this, Adam, but um, just announced recently last month that um, 
is it Unilever? Unilever Australia. They uh, are doing a 12-month trial of a four-day work week. What do you think of the four-day work week? I actually did a podcast on the ABC about this about six months ago, and I think I was the token guy. Everybody was raving, oh, we've got to do this four-hour work week, and I was the guy who said, I think it's a shit idea. So uh, I still think it's a, sh- I think it's a ridiculous idea. I think, again, if people need flexibility to work four days, then and that can work within the confines of their role, I'm not necessarily against that. If you can work 10 hours a day, fine. There's two nations of four, there's two nations of two notions of four day work week. There's one where you just work four days and you sacrifice a day and the business gets one less day. That makes no sense to me at all. Like if you want to get paid twenty five percent less or twenty percent less and work a day less, that's fine uh, in most cases. But the notion that you can get paid the same and do one day less work on the basis of some mythical efficiency bonus, well, it's it's. We know why Unilever did it. None of the people who manage Unilever own Unilever. So I think if Unilever was actually managed by an owner who who gave a shit about the business and really cared about shareholders, I don't think they'd come up with that result. That's just typical big corporate stupidity. Is there the idea that, and this might be that that like efficiency mythical beast yeah. you're, you're talking about, but it's like say you you know if you give someone four hours to complete a task, they'll complete it in four hours. If you give them the same task but only give them half an hour, they'll still complete it. Is that the idea that you're referring to, where it's like we we, it's not like we're taking five days worth of work and putting it into four days. It's like we're taking an amount of work over five days that could actually just be done in four, but we're just inefficient with our time because we think we have more time. I think that, that's a, that that theory. So the theory is work expands to the time allotted. I hundred percent agree with that. Uh, that's completely mutually exclusive to a four day week, though. I think if if you can do your five day week in four days, well, that's fine. I'm happy to pay you for four days. But the notion you suddenly become more efficient because you're working one less day just doesn't make sense. What happens is you just do less work. So you mentioned like paying someone for four days. You can tell I'm passionate about the four day work week. Yeah. But you, so you mentioned like paying somebody for our, our first disagreement. Yeah. Paying somebody for five days. Is that? But are you paying them for five days, or are you paying them for five days worth of work, or are you paying? You mentioned the like, you know, working in the office, is that that fifth day of being in the office, being around the team, doing things, you're taking that into account when you're thinking about when you're paying someone? Yeah, I, I get the FaceTime argument. And what you don't want is people sitting around the office doing nothing. But that's that's kind of a different, that's a different problem. I'm not sure you're, and I'm not sure anybody's solving that. And people are different. So if, if you're talking a pure knowledge worker, maybe, maybe there's some argument there. But if you're talking someone, a, a contact center worker, so I got a, a big part of our team works in that contact center. They're answering phones. If they're answering phones for a day less. That's customers who aren't getting their phone calls answered. I can't, you can't make the call less more efficient. I can't cut someone off 20%, 80% way into the call. Sorry, sorry, Ed. I know I haven't quite answered your query yet, but I've only got a four day week. So I'm cutting you off. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work if you work in a supermarket stacking shelves. It doesn't work. It doesn't work for most roles. The notion that suddenly you're going to get 20% quicker at doing stuff because I'm going to compress the time because I've got wasted time, that also doesn't make sense because the wasted time is scattered through the week. You can't just compress the time. It's not It's not like you work four days hard and Friday you're sitting around doing nothing. Your, your, your 20% idle time is spread through the week while you're waiting on other people to do stuff. I think in practice, it's it's a it just makes no sense. I think if someone wants to work four days and get paid 20% less, that's fine. Like I... I have no great issue with part-time work or, or less than full-time work. That's very different to what other people, this, this mythical four-day four week is, oh, we can do everything we can in, in five days and four days. And all these people say, oh, we were so much more productive. They just make stuff up. There's no data anywhere that's just that, that four days are more productive than five. And I, on the podcast, people were just talking about stuff that clearly was just made up uh, to support their agenda because they want to work four days. Now, if you own a business and want to work four days and then allow your staff to work four days, that's fine. Because if you want to... Uh, 
if you want to give your staff a 20% pay rise, which essentially this is, that's fine. I've got no issue with giving someone a pay rise. I don't dress up a pay rise in the guise of a four-day more, four more efficient week because it's not. It's a pay rise, a 20% pay rise. Maybe your staff deserve it. Maybe they don't. I'd rather just give someone a choice. I'd rather say, you can work tw- five days a week and I'll give you 20% pay rise. Cloaking it in four days as a form of a stealth pay rise to me makes no sense. Uh, if you can do your job in four days instead of five, then have a negotiation with your boss about it separately. But to say every single person in the business is working four days because we've got 20% waste of time. I'm going to pick this random 20% number. I don't know why it's four days, not three days or four and a half. Days. It's, it's all just guesswork. It's, a, it's suiting a narrative. It's suiting a narrative. People just want to work less. And it's something like, I've got nothing against people working less, but if you want to work less, get paid less. Yeah. I think it's almost the... So with the, with you know in the field that I work in where it's podcasting, like you know unless you're working on a daily show and you're you know plugged to the to the briefing to the the team have to get up at two thirty in the morning work till six a.m. then pump it out they the four day work week just simply would not work for them it it, it it theoretically is impossible but for myself where it's working in evergreen content there's there's no real time constrictions you know I could theoretically get all my work done on a Monday that is non-time restrictive and then you know that that would be fine would that and you bring up the the cold supermarket idea where it's like like that obviously also wouldn't work would the whole world have to go to a four-day work week in order for it to work or are there circumstances where you're like actually this this could work or is it more just a personal thing for luxury skates for example it just it just wouldn't. well even within our business is different much many different roles. and same as within within listeners different roles uh, i think there, there were probably some roles that Example, your role, you could do part of your role from home, part of your role, and you could probably ma- minimize those gaps between time. And maybe you could do it in four days. You know, if I was your boss, I'd say, Well, Ed, I'm going to pay you four days, do it in four days. Or why, why can't you do your work quicker? So, the, the, it, it, I think there's there's the vast majority of roles caught 90% plus. This is inapplicable for the 10% it might be applicable for. I think you're sort of uh, putting a round peg in a square hole to an extent that. You're effectively trying. To, you're effectively giving a, a pay rise by stealth. Maybe that person can do it. Whatever, but uh, it's such, we're talking about such a small number of applicable roles. So talking about Unilever. Well, Unilever's got a bunch of people who work in distribution centers, and warehouses, in in the in the lab. These guys can't work twenty or guys or girls can't work one day less because they're doing literally twenty percent less work. So it's just a tiny proportion of Unilever's head office, well paid head office staff who who want to go spend a day a week shopping and playing golf. Well, that's fine. Take a day off, but. I'll pay you 20% less. That, that seems to be the fair trade-off or take half a day off and whatever it is. I think the notion that you can just push around your work, unless you're in a really unusual circumstance where you have such great control over the inflow of work, and that's pretty rare, but if you've got great control over inflow and you can sort of choose when you want to do it and reduce those gaps and be super efficient, maybe. We're talking a, a very small number of people. Uh, it's certainly another, won't, this won't ever happen to any business I'm running. Um, there are certainly some businesses that swear by, but I, I would have thought the businesses that are running are very good businesses, aren't very well run, and time will tell. I think if you look at the work from home businesses, the people, the businesses encouraging work from home, the, the Atlassians, et cetera, A, they've been performing badly, and B, I think they're doing it because they can't get staff. I think it's a, it's again, it's a, it's a, it's a stealth pay rise. I'm going to let people work from home because people don't want to work from the office because the office isn't good enough or the job is too boring or the business is ex-growth or whatnot. When we interview someone for, for jobs at Luxury Scapes, we're now very upfront in telling them, we're going to five days a week pretty soon. If you don't want to work five days a week, that's completely fine. We understand. We know it's not for you, uh, but we are a work from office business. If we're hiring remotely, it's different. But but if we're hiring in a capital city, if you're hiring in Melbourne or Sydney or wherever we are, the expectation is you will be working from or, or 
Bangalore or Singapore or London, wherever our office is, uh, the understanding is you'll be coming to the office most likely five days a week. And if that's not for you. We understand there's lots of other places that you can work. So I think it's, it's part of being honest and setting expectations and, and applying those policies fairly and equally. And that's it for this edition of Ask Adam Anything. Thanks so much for your questions. If you'd like to submit a question, please send a voice recording to info at fromzeropodcast.com. If you're a founder, young professional, or just someone interested in the world of business, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Our producer is Ed Gooden. Our audio producer is Darcy Thompson. And this has been From Zero Podcast with me, Adam Schwab. Hold up. 